0: Hey folks, we're turning to 2 Corinthians 4 this morning. I don't have time to recap uh, just the flow of the book and how we've got to where we are so far. Um, It's all available online, but this is what you need to know as we come to chapter 4. Uh, There have been people who have come into the church in Corinth uh, between... Uh, Paul establishing the church uh, and him going then back to visit it. Uh, They were called Judaizers and they kind of followed Paul around and most of the churches that he went to, they kind of crept in after him. They believed that these Greek Christians, these Corinthian Christians, if they truly wanted to follow God, if they truly wanted to know God's blessing, then it wasn't enough just to be changed on the inside. Their lives had to mark the real children of God, the Jews. That was their thinking. And so they wanted the, all the Old Testament stuff to carry forward. They wanted the Corinthians to eat kosher. They wanted them to be circumcised. They wanted them to have Passover and all that. They wanted, a cult, they wanted cultural uniformity across the church, which just was not what Paul uh, imagined the gospel to be at all. And so this whole chapter deals with his convictions about why he does what he does, why he carries the message that he does and what drives him on. And so this chapter in particular has those wonderful verses, I'm pressed but not crushed, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. It says, I can keep on going when times are tough. I can keep going through it all. My question then this morning and even tonight is, Well, how does he keep going? When we're pressed, how do we keep going? Believing that we're not going to be crushed. What happens when we get persecuted? Are we going to keep going, believing that we're not going to be forsaken? That even whenever we're struck down, whenever we hit the floor and it's hard, what happens then in that moment? Do we believe? Do we believe that we will not be destroyed? And uh, verse 1 and verse 16, there's this kind of explanation. The book ends the chapter. It says, do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Uh, the literal meaning is, do not lose your courage. Do not give in. So when it's tough, when it's hard, do not lose heart. Don't give up. I, if you remember the Wizard of Oz, it reminds me a lot about the people that I can meet in church. Um, you've got Dorothy who doesn't want to be there. She wants to be somewhere else. Maybe there's someone in church this morning who's sort of hand on heart. I'd rather be somewhere else. Blink three times, we'll sneak you out. It's okay. Um, you've got Scarecrow, who doesn't have a brain. I've met some people like that in churches up and down my time. You've got the Tin Man who's dead, but he wants to be alive. Maybe there's someone in church like that this morning. You... you you're not saved, but you'd long to be. someone searching for life, something searching for something that has more vibrancy, something that's real. And then there's the lion who is searching for courage. He knows that more is expected of him, but he can't bring himself to be who he is meant to be, a lion. And he longs to realize his potential, but what he needs is courage. Maybe there's some here like that this morning. And then, of course, there's me, the munchkin. But anyway, that's a different analogy altogether, okay? So this is a message for the lions who are searching for courage this morning. Paul finishes chapter 3 with these wonderful words. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So even though we've all got saved, and maybe we're in different places, different parts, different things that we've been saved out of, we've all been saved out of sin, and we're all making a beeline uh, converging into the same likeness of Christ. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And then that shifts the start in next chapter 4, because remember, Paul didn't write in chapters and verses. They were put in afterwards to help us reference it. And so he flew straight into the next sentence. Therefore, because God is doing this in us, because God is working in us and making us into the likeness of His Son from glory to glory, because He is doing this, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do do not lose her. We do not give up. So Paul can keep going in his Christian walk because he can see that God is doing something in him. He's being changed. He's not the same guy he used to be. So he knows the gospel is real. The power of the gospel is real because he can see it in himself. He's not being dishonest. He's not being fake. He knows himself. It's real and it's doing something in him. So what he's doing in preaching the gospel isn't something that he's doing on a whim. It isn't a career path that he chose between that and banking and law. No. This is God simply at work in him. So let me speak this morning to the Christian who is in the trials, to the Christian who is who is. Serving faithfully in the church, but is struggling to stay motivated. To the young Christian overwhelmed by the evil of this world, to the older Christian who's simply tired of this world, there may be reason to feel like you want to give up, that no one would blame you if you did. Do not lose heart. And this morning we'll talk about how Paul was able to stay faithful and focused on God. He is at work in you. He is seeking to mold you from glory to glory into the likeness of his son. He is doing something in you. He's working in you. So therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So verse 2 here, Paul's starting to open up a bit. Uh, it's it's less about doctrine and theology. Uh, this whole letter of Second Corinthians is far more about uh, the character of those who believe rather than just what they believe. It's not a challenge to the head, it's a challenge to the heart. And Paul is writing, having been accused of being a bad preacher with a bad message, and so maybe things would go easier for him in his ministry if he added a wee bit of flair, a wee bit of pizzazz, a wee bit more charisma, a wee bit of flair. And really what he's saying in these verses is, look, I don't use showmanship. I'm not tugging on people's heartstrings. I'm not putting on a big production. He says, "Oh, well, number one, I don't have any of that stuff. I don't have the wherewithal to be charismatic. I don't have the wherewithal to be a showman. This is coming from Paul. Uh, And and he's really kind of admitting, look, I may not be the most charismatic speaker that there is in the church, but they're manipulating the word of God by their message. They say, I'm undermining the law by talking about grace, but I say to them, you're undermining grace by focusing on the law. And that's a huge point that he's trying to make because while he doesn't want to say that he's perfect, what he's saying is the dramatic conversion marked a huge change in him. It's behind him now. I've renounced that old way of life. And yes, I have sinned, but I hate my sin. I'm ashamed of my sin. All I want to do is share this simple, honest gospel that has made a difference in my life. And so that people will look at God and not see me, not see my show, not see my production, not see the the entourage that I have with me, but they'll just simply see God shining out through me because that's all I want that's what he's saying here remember in 1 Corinthians 2 he says for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified says, maybe you want me to talk about other stuff but I don't have anything else to talk about I just want to tell you about how Jesus lives and he lives in me and he lives in you because he is alive and well today that's what he's saying and so what Paul was doing was the one thing that he knew that he could do And he's doing the one thing that he couldn't help but do preach the gospel. Point to Jesus. I I think if you compare his actions and his drive, the, the best comparison is to an addict. If you have an old King James Bible, the word addict appears once, and it's about Christians who are addicted to service in the church. That's the only context that that word is used in. And so, in that same context, I would say Paul was an addict. I'll confess to you this morning. I'm an addict. Serving God in ministry is an addiction because even if I was told to stop, I couldn't. You know, Ruth will start having a conversation, you know, and then she starts seeing me twitching. It's like, this isn't biblical. You know, and it kind of boils over. Because even if I was told to stop, I would find an outlet somewhere or another. Because I I just got to. I just got to do it. God has done this amazing thing, and I can't help it. It's just in there. I remember when I got my first job interview for full-time Christian work. uh, I was at home with the family, and uh, the phone went, and uh, the church that um, was looking for a youth pastor, and so they wanted to arrange a time and a place for an interview and all. And my dad turned to me, and he says, son, that's, that's exciting. It's brilliant. It's exciting. He says, but if you can think about doing anything else, literally anything else, if there's even a possibility that you think you might be called to do something different, do that. Because if not, other ministry will eat you up and spit you out if you're not totally convinced. It is what God would have you to do, because that's the only thing that will keep you going. It's true. It's true. In, in the hardest moments, whether it's in youth work or, or in pastoral work, at your lowest, the one thing that keeps you going is: this is what God has called me to do. I can't help but do anything else. So I am addicted, folks. I can't help myself. And Paul has already told the Corinthians in First Corinthians: "Woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel." It says it's going to break me up inside. But it, it, it's echoed through Scripture, Jeremiah 20. he says, I tried to keep quiet. I, I tried not to make mention of the name of Jesus, but when I did, it burned inside me, and I grew weary of holding it in, and I couldn't contain it. It says, I can't. Jeremiah ended up in prison for, for speaking. Nobody responded to his message, but he couldn't help not talking about Jesus. Or Amos 3 in the Jeff International Version Um, He asked this wonderful rhetorical question. He says, the lion roared. Who's not going to respond to that? You know, if you're in the jungle and the lion roars, you kind of go, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm reacting to this. And then he mostly goes on to say, the Lord God has spoken, so who won't prophesy? Who isn't going to take that message on? How do you keep going in your faith? Well, number one, get back to the awe and wonder of the gospel in you and what God is doing in you. But honestly, the only way that you'll be able to endure in the Christian life is if you do what you were called to do, to do the thing that you are addicted to doing, spiritually speaking. Some people never endure because they go somewhere that they weren't sent. Then they wonder why it's so hard. They're trying to do something that's a chore and it's not a ministry that comes from the mercy of God. How can you be sure of your calling? How can you be sure you're in the right place? First thing to do is ask, well, what are you gifted for? What, what are you gifted for? What are you naturally uh, excelling at, right? Because some people have no idea um, how to speak in front of a crowd. Other, and, and some people have no inclination to speak in front of a crowd. Right. Well, the last thing that, the thing that they should be doing is asked to go and speak at the front of the church. You know? that, that's cruel to make them do that. Just because they're spiritually mature doesn't mean that they're gifted for it. And you're only going to make it hard, and you're going to suck the joy out of anything that they're doing if you make them do something that they're not gifted for. <laughs> Likewise, there's people, and they're really gifted in the work of evangelism. They have a heart for it. They have this wonderful way of bringing conversations round to the cross and in repentance and forgiveness. And yet they find themselves not evangelizing, but leading churches in a pastoral role. And they struggle. And the church struggles. Why? Because they're in the wrong place. They've gone somewhere where they weren't sent. And so listen, if you join the RAF, they don't make you buy your own plane, right? They provide one for you. Likewise, In the same way that God calls you, and He calls all of the people who He has saved, by the way, no exceptions, when He calls you, He will give you what you need to fulfill your calling. So start by looking at what is in your heart to do. Look around and see what needs that you see that you feel compelled to help in. What are you addicted to doing? What way are you addicted to helping or comforting or worshiping or serving or encouraging? What has he given to you to use? And your calling is in there somewhere. It may not be a calling that you get paid for, but listen, every Christian's calling is a full-time calling. Whether you work in a church or a school, an office or at home, it's a full-time calling to represent Christ, to live for him. And that's why Paul says we do not lose heart. We're just not able to quit doing it because we know that this thing that's happening in us, it's of God. So we're not stopping. Circumstances are tough, but we know that this is of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What a wonderful description of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's so much in that, and I have to keep moving. But Paul spoke simply and plainly. His preaching style was straightforward and and, and basic and to the point, and he got criticized for that. It's why the church in Corinth in particular were saying, well, I prefer Cephas. I prefer Peter. I prefer Apollos. I prefer these other people because he's, he's, he's nicer to listen to. He's easier to listen to. I get more out of it. And so they said to Paul, look, maybe if you changed your message a little bit, maybe if you added a wee bit more personality, a wee bit spark, and maybe took out a wee bit of hell, took out a wee bit of the condemnation talk, Maybe you'd get a wee bit further. And Paul's response is very simple. He says, Look, it's not the preacher's job to sell the gospel. It's not up to the preacher to persuade and to convince people. It's not up to us to change the message to make it more appealing so that we can get the seal. That's not how this works. It's not human logic that's the issue. Okay, There's children who are down there in the junior Bible class who are five and six, and they're saved because they've heard the gospel and, and, and responded to the gospel. It's not an issue about logic or not being able to understand. Rather, Paul is saying that conviction is solely the work of the Holy Spirit. So all we can do is tell people the message. What happens after that is up to them. We cannot of ourselves create an anxious thought in people. All we can do is point them to Scripture, point them to Jesus, and say, okay, what are you going to do with this man who is called Jesus? Is he Lord? Is he liar? Is he lunatic? See, the God of this world, who is Satan, has blinded them, has veiled their eyes, covered their eyes that's his job. Satan, the devil, he is the deceiver. His job is to deceive people about their spiritual condition, to blind them to their need of a savior, to blind them to the light, the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what he does, which means the issue isn't human understanding that can be overcome with human logic. It's a spiritual blindness that needs a spiritual light to remove it. That's what Paul's saying. He says no matter how good the sermon, no matter how good things are going on, no matter how powerfully you preach or how wonderfully you preach, there's always going to be some people who are just looking at their shoes, looking at their phone, not paying any attention, and it doesn't mean anything to them. And as soon as it's over, they're away, and it doesn't flinch them. So it's got nothing to do with the speaker. That's Paul's argument. Let me clarify something though. Sometimes it's got everything to do with the speaker. Right? In that sometimes the sermon is unbiblical. Or sometimes it's uninspired. Sometimes the preacher is unenthusiastic. Um, John Piper ha- has a book out, a new book out. And it's about how preaching is an act of worship. And it's, it's a fascinating read. But whenever a a preacher gets up and just phones it in, then it's on him. Let's be clear. But when a preacher is on fire for God and people in parts of the service are responding and people are getting blessed and there's other people who are dotted about in the same service, in the same atmosphere, in the same meeting, and they're looking at their phone, well, that's not the preacher's fault. That's what I'm saying. That's Satan blinding them to their need. Remember when Paul was standing before um, Agrippa uh, and he was sharing the gospel? Acts 26. um, Yes, 26. Just to clarify. Yes, 26. Um, He's sharing his defense uh, and then Festus interrupts him. um, Yes, verse 24. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus with a loud voice said, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. So, so Festus kind of cuts him off and says, Dude, you're nuts. You're nuts. So what about all that evidence? <laughs> you're mental. Satan's main job is to stop unbelievers and even believers from seeing Christ as he truly ought to be seen that his majesty is dimmed, his glory is dimmed, his love, his faithfulness, His, his beauty, his compassion, it's dimmed. That's what Satan does. And that's why we preach Christ and him crucified. Because he is the only one who can make blinded eyes to see. That's the point. I heard about a church that had this on, um, on a wall outside their church just as people drove past they could see it and it was to let everyone know and people as they drove into the church we in this church preach Christ crucified but there was difficulties in the church and, and the temperature of, of the spiritual temperature of the church went down a wee bit and it started to reflect and there was a uh, ivy and branches and things growing up around the wall and eventually it covered part of the, the verse and so yes we, we preach Christ but you know we, we kind of maybe just ease up a wee bit on, on the whole uh, dying and blood and, and, and all the rest of it we kind of just want to talk about Jesus as, uh, as a friend he's a friend of people and he loves you and he's compassionate and caring but we're not really going to talk about the hard stuff just keep coming into our church. We preach Christ. Unfortunately, things carried on, and, and they stopped talking so much about Jesus, but they started talking about, you know, felt needs. Um, we, we'll, we'll preach to you about poverty. We'll preach to you about feeling good in the community. We'll, teach, we'll, we'll preach about good works and how we should be kind and nice and gentle to each other, and it should all be about love and acceptance. And Jesus wasn't really mentioned. To eventually, it got to a point where the church was really just all about we. You see, the thing that happens is Satan can even blind us in the church. We get our eyes off things. And slowly but surely, it's not really about Christ crucified, but about us and how we feel and church is good if i feel that i'm feel like good coming after or if i feel like sort of the, the goosebumps whenever i'm singing and if i don't have that then i'm not particularly interested in going to church some people love to make the pulpit all about them some denominations like to make it all about them that if you don't get saved in their church or if you don't get baptized in their church or if you don't get then you know you're not really one of god's people Verse 5 is a wonderful reminder that we're not lording it over people, but we're pointing people to the Lord. Christ is great, and we simply get to be a part of that message. He must increase. I must decrease, even in my own life, so that there's no room for me and my selfishness, but there's more room for Him in my life. Less of me, more of Him. Remember, the Corinthians had a whole thing about Paul, Paul, Cephas, this is what it's all about. And he's just underlining this again. Forget the messenger. Forget the messenger. Get your eyes on the one the message is about. If your spiritual vitality is on me as a preacher doing a good sermon, you're in trouble, <laughs> all right? And we're all in trouble. If it's dependent on the praise group bringing it, if we fall below your expectations and you don't get blessed this week, the issue isn't us you because your eyes are on the wrong thing. You'll never endure the trials looking to me. You'll never endure the trials looking to a music group. You'll never endure the trials looking to a podcast or a celebrity Christian or your wife or your parents or whoever. you got to look to Christ. And then in verse 6, we have this comparison of a conversion and the new creation that we are in Christ to the original creation back in Genesis. Uh, Right back in Genesis 1, verse 2, we read that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters and the Lord said, let there be light. And maybe Paul's singing about his own conversion experience here, but in the same way, just before we are saved, the Spirit of God hovers over us in, in, in conviction and then God opens our eyes as if he said, let there be light in the depths of the darkness of his soul. Verse 7, then, we switch from the glory of that ministry to the presentation of the ministry. A valuable treasure in a simple pot. The treasure is in a jar of clay to show that surpassing power belongs to God, not us. It's about Him. Pots back then were like Tupperware. Today, we put anything and everything in them. The ancient world used pots for water, for wine, for food, for rubbish, for scraps, for laundry, for all sorts uh, I think a modern saying here that Paul's really trying to tap in is don't judge a book by its cover. Don't write off the pot if you don't understand the treasure that's inside. And why Paul is making this point is because the message is more important than the messenger. Stop focusing on the pot and look at what the pot has got inside. It's about God's glory, not about our glory. So, so listen, if I left the church tomorrow... If if uh, if God called me home or called me on, the only thing that our evangelical church will have lost is a pot. And you might say a crack pot, but um, you can get another pot easily enough. But nothing can replace the treasure that's inside. That's what he's saying. That's why God gets all the glory. All of it. If he only used people who were the most educated, the most charismatic, the most beautiful, the most charming, we'd look at their church flourishing and go, yeah, I can understand why, why that's doing well. Look at that guy. Look at that guy. They're amazing. But whenever he uses a wee crack crackpot munchkin he failed to get into banking, He failed to get into teaching, people will say, look at that guy. God must be working there because that's definitely not him. And that's good better that way. Hudson Taylor used to say, all of God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on Him being with them. Their eyes are fixed on the treasure, not the pot. Sorry, verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. We've got four pictures there of what the reality is for Paul in his ministry. We like to think of him sort of being this kind of glorious kind of leading the charge and it's all beautiful and wonderful for him, but 2 Corinthians 11 gives us a breakdown, and I will be getting to that in this series in a time, but basically saying, like, I've been whipped five times, three times I was beaten, once I was stoned, by the way, he was also left for dead, he doesn't mention that there, left for dead, shipwrecked three times, spent a day and a night floating at sea. He faced robbers and bandits. He was in danger from the Jews, in danger from the Gentiles. He was in danger in the city. He was in danger in the countryside, sleepless nights, starving, nothing to drink, and on top of all, the burden of all the churches on the shoulders. He had a lot going on. It's not easy. And Paul says that having my eyes on the only one who is able to sustain me through those things, That's what gets me through. No one else but Christ. No one else but Christ is going to satisfy me in those moments. No one else but Christ is going to be strong enough in those moments. I've been at a loss, but never at a total loss. I've been down, but I am not out because I'm looking to the one who is greater than anything that the world's got to offer. That's the point. Now, here's the thing these verses are all glorious if you're prepared to keep looking to Jesus in those trials. Not if you just expect God to take you away from those hard times that you get to opt out of trials or suffering. That's not an option for the Christian. But to know this kind of victory you must know this kind of challenge. To be pressed believing that you're not going to get crushed. And verse 10 is Paul's way of saying, look, if this is what I have to do to show people the life of Christ, if it means I literally have to die, fine, sure, no problem. That's what I will do. I'm just a pot. My life is not mine to live. Remember what we said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. My life's not my own. And if this is where God wants me to put my life down, fine. Because he's not just my savior, he's my Lord. He's saying, get your eyes on him. It's so easy to want to give up sometimes and to pull away in times of hardship, but even more so whenever you're still trying to say, yeah, but my life is mine. I've still got a claim. I still have a say here in what's happening. It's my life, Jesus. It's my money, Jesus. It's my time, Jesus. You're always going to struggle to live for Jesus when you're also trying to still live for yourself and build up treasures on earth whenever you're supposed to be building up treasures in heaven. And ultimately, the thing that will get you through the tough times is knowing which master you're going to serve. That's really what it comes down to. That choice that you have to make. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. So, death is at work at us. But life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has also been written, I believed and so I spoke. That's from Psalm 116. We also believe and we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Now, men, I'm sure your house is like mine, where this morning you woke up and there was a smell of bacon and sausage in your house and your wife came flowing, like gliding uh, as on air up the stairs and presented to you a cooked breakfast this morning. Well, that pig that you ate, that's what Paul's talking about. I'll die to sustain your life. I'll put my life down to, to, uh, so that life-giving gospel news can go to those who need it. And he says, I believe him. Because I trust Him, and because I trust Him, I put my weight and confidence in Him, and because my confidence is in Him, I've got no problem speaking out. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. He's saying, that this is the devil at work. It's what it's like but I know that God trumps Satan. So yeah, the outward physical stuff is going to be hard. It'll pick up cracks and scars. Our bodies will get older, slower, kind of change shape a wee bit. You might say the pot might go to pot eventually, but as the physical body fails us and fades, the inward man is going from strength to strength, from glory to glory in the image of the Son. No, verse 17. Verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal way of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, these heavy trials that he has gone through, all those things that we mentioned, that he, he listed, he says it's light. It's light. jail death threats being left for dead escaping people by hiding in baskets and being smuggled over the walls of the city just to get away that's light you might say "Uh, no it's not and by the way Jeff if you keep calling my struggles light I'm going to punch in your little munchkin face but we all know people who make mountains out of molehills right oh I'm starving to death oh my job is killing me oh I'm exhausted uh, it's drama. Uh, it's shush. Sh- sh- sh. See, Paul has a really wonderful way of making mountains into molehills. Guys, everything I've gone through, as big and as serious and as scary and as hard as it has been, it's nothing. It's light. It's nothing to be compared to what is coming our way. Why is it so light? Because it's temporary. That's the point. What you're going through might be so tough that you're you're getting cross and you're thinking, Jeff, if you, you need to stop t- calling my, my stuff light, but if you, but it will pass. It will pass, and all your trials will be like nothing in compared to the length of eternity that lies ahead. That's heavy and that's hard. So let me just finish very quickly by widening it up a wee bit. Remember Isaiah six whenever he says, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. In the year of my hardest trials, in the year I lost my closest ally, in the year that I lost someone who I was so close to and was so good for us, in that year, in that time, I saw God. Maybe for you, you could say, in the year 2019, I lost a close friend. In the year my marriage ended, in the year that my trials overwhelmed me, in the year that I nearly lost heart, in the year I lost my job, I saw the Lord. Because Isaiah goes on to say, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Then he goes on to say, I I dwell in the midst of people on cliffs, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There was this fear that overwhelmed him by getting this image of the glory of God. Woe is me. Woe is me. And maybe it sounds quite abstract in Isaiah 6. Maybe just as abstract as 2 Corinthians. Until you read John 12. John 12 verse 41 tells us that it was Jesus whom Isaiah saw. He got a glimpse of who Jesus really was. And that changes things. 700... And something years before Bethlehem, we have this picture of Jesus in his glory. Uh, you see, I, I don't think that my problem in, in my life is desire. I, I, I want to surrender. I want to live fully for him. Uh, and there's so many times where I'm just like, ah, uh, I, I want this. I, I want to be fully surrendered to God. I don't want to kind of have my eyes on so many other things. And the problem isn't know-how. I think I know what needs to happen. I think we all know what needs to happen in our lives to fully surrender. I think what our problem so often is, is that we don't have that vision of who he is. Our vision is cloudy. Isaiah was struggling with everything that was going on. And when he had a vision of Jesus, he got his eyes on him. And then in the middle of his trials, he said, Here I am. Send me, guy. Here I am. I want to go. Let me go again vision changed it was the same with the twelve disciples they saw him all the time but they didn't always get it remember when he was sleeping on the boat and the storms were coming and these seasoned sailors were fearful of their very lives they were sore afraid and they wake Jesus up and he speaks those words peace be still the wind and the waves recognize the name of Jesus and immediately obey and there's stillness in the middle of the storm. And those disciples didn't burst into song. Sure they didn't. They didn't start singing, oh glory and praise to him. How awesome is this? They responded in fear that that storm was scary. But Jesus, you're scarier in a good way, but you're scarier. Because that, that, they started to see just that, that, that glory of Jesus starting to shine through. And they got that wee insight and fear kind of took over them. Or again, whenever they, they were out fishing and they couldn't catch anything and Jesus said, to catch, throw your nets out to the other side. One of two things happened just before they, they all near drowned because there were so many fish caught. Peter realized this. Jesus either created fish in the nets for them to catch or all the fish in the sea listened to Jesus and obeyed and all the fish that they couldn't catch went into the nets. Either way, it's incredible. But their response wasn't Wow, brilliant, thank you. We're rich now. Look at all the fish we caught. Peter saw it, and his response is, Depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinner. And that just echoes Isaiah 6, doesn't it? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I thought I knew who you were, Jesus. I thought I could see who you were. But I couldn't get it until now. We're so familiar with Jesus sometimes. We'll, we'll like a Facebook poster. we'll share a verse, and he's like our lucky mascot. If things go wrong, oh, quick, let's pray. But if we really see him, if we really follow what happened to these guys who saw him like this, they were changed. He's more than a teacher. He's more than a good example. He's more than, 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 than a guy who said some good things. He is the glorious king who's robed and glorified, and he's the very fullness of God in flesh, according to Colossians. In other words, when we see Jesus as he really is, when we get close enough to get an insight, we are overcome by a sense of who he is, and those trials that we faced... They're nothing compared to the glory of God. Isaiah, in the year that my my friend, my king, my, 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 my partner in ministry died, I saw the Lord. Here I am, said me. I don't care about the trials anymore. Peter on the boat says, if you can do that with fish, hey, I'm following you. It doesn't matter what's happening. I see who you are. And for Paul... He's saying the same thing to the Corinthians. Get a a clear picture of Christ and you'll be overcome by a sense of who he is and the trials that you face will feel like nothing, light in comparison to him. It's not that they are light, not that they are easy, but they are nothing compared to him. Romans 8 says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And here's what Hebrews says about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. I chose a harder path than the fleeting pleasures of sin. Who does that? Huh? I'm going to choose the harder path than the easier path. Because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. For he endured. He kept going. He pursued all, as seeing him who is invisible. Heavenly Father help us to to see with eyes of